As a young child living in Kosice, Slovakia, Miriam narrowly escaped the inferno of the Holocaust. Throughout her adult life, Dr. Miriam Klein Kasanov dedicated herself to bringing awareness of the Holocaust and its lessons to future generations through books, seminars, lectures, school curricula, and films. A highly acclaimed expert on Holocaust education, Dr. Klein Kasanov currently directs the University of Miami's Holocaust Teachers Institute and is Miami-Dade County Public Schools Education Specialist for Holocaust Studies. The National Jewish Retreat is honored to welcome Dr. Miriam Klein Kasanov. So for those of you who were not here yesterday, let me give you briefly what I do and why I do this topic. So I am considered a child survivor of the Holocaust. What is a child survivor? A child survivor is any child who uh, escaped Nazi Europe due to the oppression of the Nazis. Uh, that was usually under the age of 10 or 12 before bar mitzvah, who was either hidden or given away, or in my case, on the run, meaning running and hiding in the open. Now that whole story I gave yesterday, so I'm sorry you missed it, but ultimately our family did arrive safely in the United States, and here I am. So today, after arriving in America safely as a five-year-old, I grew up as my father commanded me when we arrived on the shores of America. His words to me were, Miriam, we're in a free land, we're in the Golden Medina, and here you can be safe, and here you are going to grow up and I want you to be an educator, and I want you to do the three Talmudic lessons. I want you to always study. I want you to always learn, and I want you to give back to the community. And so I have devoted my life to giving back, to studying, and to learning. And I got a doctorate at the age of 60. I know I still look 60. But, uh, I got my doctorate at the age of 60, and I am very proudly still working as director. <laughs> Thank you. As director of Holocaust education for the Miami-Dade County Public Schools, the fourth largest school district in uh, the United States, the only fully tax-paid job of a Holocaust educator that I know of. They can't get rid of me, and thank God my boss loves me. So uh, he says, as long as you can walk and talk and do this, you're on. And 20 years ago, I was asked to develop a teacher training foundation at the University of Miami. I'm now starting my 20th year of the Holocaust Institute at the University of Miami, where my job is to train all of our public school teachers in the state of Florida, and now we've opened it up to teachers from all over the United States to come and learn how to properly teach this very sacred history. Well, in that role of teaching teachers, I 
create all kinds of methods and programs on what they can do and how they can use the information in the classroom. Now, as you know, there are many mandates, laws, that teachers have to follow. Like in Florida, there's a mandate to teach the potato famine. Don't ask me about that. I don't know anything about it. But uh, there are 12 states that require teaching the Holocaust. Florida is one of them and one of the leaders of it. But we are also required to teach African-American history. We're also required to teach women history. Uh-huh. So that's where I managed to put in Holocaust through women. So in my lifetime of doing this work, which has now been almost 25 years, I have had the good fortune to have met many famous women scholars and survivors of the Holocaust. I've had lunch with them, I've had dinner with them, I've had them come speak to my teachers in Miami, and each one told me such incredible stories that finally I sat down one day and I put together this presentation. And I'm focusing mainly on women who resisted and who rescued. M many of them, as I get to their pictures and you'll hear their voices, you'll say, oh, I know her, but I didn't know this about her. So Every presentation I make throughout the country, I dedicate in memory of my family. Again, had you been here yesterday, a little Jewish guilt, um, you would have heard this whole story. Uh, that's my father, um, a blessed memory, Rabbi Maurice Klein. We are from Miami Beach, Florida, originally from Kosice, Czechoslovakia. That's my mother, a blessed memory, Sarah Klein. That's my brother, unfortunately, a blessed memory, Tibor, or Ted Klein. And that's my mom who attended the last institute that I gave before she died. We came from Kosice, we escaped from Kosice. My father had studied with the Munkacha Rebbe and was caught in a concentration camp in 1940 in Slovakia. He escaped, took my mother, me, I was four years old, and my brother, who was only nine months old, and we went on an eight-month journey of escape through seven countries, hiding and running in the open to Lisbon, Portugal. We arrived in America, and now I'm the only one left of this family. Jewish women performed truly heroic deeds during the Holocaust. I'm going to read from my script. You can read up there. They faced unthinkable peril and upheaval, traditions upended, spouses sent to death camps, they themselves torn from their roles as caregivers and pushed into the workforce to be humiliated and abused. And yet, in the face of danger and atrocity, they bravely joined the resistance. They smuggled food into the ghettos, and they made wrenching sacrifices to keep their children alive. My sources that I suggest to you, if you have your cell phone, you can pull it out. 
are Joan Ringelheim, Rochelle Seidel, Dahlia Ofer, Lenore Weitzman, and so on, if you can grab those names, because I'd rather move into the content of the program. Now, because I teach teachers, the next slide is really uh, a lesson on the authentic definition of what the Holocaust is. If you don't mind, I'd rather move beyond it. If you went to the museum yesterday, then I'm sure you saw that. But mainly, I want to get to the next slide, because this really is a story of resistance. So what is resistance during the Holocaust? I personally was trained by the leaders of the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance Movement. And what they taught me was to go back to the schools where I work and to try to push teaching Jewish resistance during the Holocaust. This is so important. This is why rooms are not often filled when there's a Holocaust topic, because in my opinion, there are people who feel like, well, we call it Holocaust fatigue. Enough is enough is enough. I've heard it. I don't want to hear any more. But there's a whole other story besides the horrors and the atrocities. There's the resistance. There's the Jews who fought back. And they are, there are a lot of them, as you will see, women. So what was resistance? Resistance was to smuggle a loaf of bread, to teach in secret, to cry out warning and shatter illusions, to rescue a Torah scroll, to forge documents, smuggle people across borders, chronicle events, as in the um, Onik Shabbat archives, which I'm sure many of you, I hope, have seen the film, Who Will Write Our History, to hold out a helping hand to the needy, to contact others under siege and smuggle weapons, to fight with weapons in streets, forests, and mountains, to rebel in the death camps, to rise up in the ghettos among the crumbling walks in the most desperate revolt. The first person I want to introduce you to is Dr. Yafa Aliyah. How many of you have heard of her, knew her? So Yafa was a very good friend of mine. Unfortunately, she passed last year. She really is the pioneering scholar of Holocaust studies. She started at Brooklyn College. She was born in Asia Shock, which is a famous, famous city in Lithuania. And how many of you were at the museum yesterday? So the room with the faces, the tower, Yaffa created that because her grandfather was the photographer in Asia Shock. And so before the war, he took all those pictures and she went back under Jimmy Carter's commission on the study of the Holocaust and found many of the pictures that her grandfather had taken in Asia Shock, and she noted, excuse me, donated them to the Holocaust Museum. So I want you to meet Nahama Tech. Does anybody know about Nahama Tech? Nahama Tech was a hidden child. She was hidden by Catholics in, um, um, she was born in Lublin, Poland, and uh, she finally survived, and when she came to America, 
Uh, Nakama was determined to put her Holocaust experiences behind her. In 1950, she married a child psychiatrist, and uh, she taught and is professor of emeritus uh, in Connecticut, at the University of Connecticut. Now, why you really would know Nakama is how many of you have seen the movie Defiance about the Bielski partisans? Nakama wrote that story, and how did that happen? So it turns out that she was telling me at lunch when I met her, this was about 20 years ago, that her next project was that she was going to write this story. And she was on her way to New York to meet the three brothers, the Bielski brothers, because the oldest one was still living, Tuvia Bielski, if you remember that story. And she went to interview him to find out, you know, how it was that he saved so many Jewish people in the forest. And he was sickly by then, and his wife, who he had married uh, in the forest, was very protective of him and said, you know what, enough is enough. I don't want him giving any more interviews. You have to leave. So Nahama said, well, I'm going to Israel for a month, and when I come back, can I come finish the interview? And she said yes. But when Nahama came back, Tubia had passed away. So then she went to his other brothers who were still living, and they're still the youngest one living in Florida. And then she wrote the, uh, the famous book. Um, and then a movie was made of the story. Here is my camera, the original camera that I have since 1939. This camera, I took pictures when the Russians occupied, I took pictures when the Nazis occupied, and I took pictures in the partisans. This camera was buried in the ground many times when I was in the partisans and I were attacked and I was on assignment. And many times I took it, the, uh, the camera out and it still works. And the same camera, all my pictures that I took was all with this particular camera. It's, um, I, I would never like to part as long as I live with this camera. So many memories and so many stories and so many things happened. And all the, this camera have seen everything. Every, every picture almost has it, it's a story, what to tell. And all the stories are my memories. So I cannot really separate one from another. Just the one that before the war, that I made um, before, before the, the that I colored myself when I was young. That's my favorite picture, and the favorite picture is good that I have the whole family before killing. Living in the Partisans, to me, it was like a picnic already after what we went through before the Partisans. The Partisan life was actually very good for us, because living by ourselves in the forest and, and uh, hungry and wet and not being able to get any clothes or, or to wash ourselves for a whole year. We did not wash ourselves. And the water, we had to uh, dissolve the snow in order to get a little bit of water. And if we begged a little bit of bread and we brought it back 
to the forest. We hung it up. We left it on the ground. The animals ate it. So we used to hang it on top of the of the uh, trees in order to preserve it. It was difficult. My legs were burned completely because it was so cold when we sat in front of the fire. I did not feel that my flesh was burning my legs. Uh, it was a, a horror. But when we came to the partisans, to me, that was a good life. I was not alone. And if I was going to die, I was going to die as a fighter, not because I was born a Jew. I was going to die as a fighter. And that kept us going. So uh, Gisela Pearl was a gynecologist. Uh, she lived in Saget, Romania. Why is that familiar to you? Ellie Wiesel was from Saget. Until 1944, when the Nazis invaded Hungary and deported the Jews, they sent her and her family to the Auschwitz concentration camp, where she lost her husband and only son, her parents, and her family. She was made to work as a doctor in the camp, helping the inmates through their diseases and discomfort. But she is most famous for saving the lives of hundreds of mothers by aborting their pregnancies, since the Nazis often beat or killed pregnant mothers or gave them to Mengele for his experiments. After liberation, she became a doctor in Mount Sinai Hospital in New York and delivered 3,000 babies, and then she went on to work at Hadassah in Israel. But the most famous story that I love to tell, and I don't have time to read it all like I usually do, is that when young Esti Magid arrived in Auschwitz with her young new husband, they had just been married, they were separated, and she was never to see her husband again. She was pregnant. And the girls, the, the Lagerschwesters, as they were called, in the bunkers kept saying to her, if Mengele discovers you're pregnant and you give birth to that child, a child will be used for experiments. You have to go to Dr. Pearl for an abortion. And she said, absolutely not. I'm not going to do that. They finally talked her into it. She went to Gisela, and Gisela said, listen, Esty, I promise you, you and I are going to survive. And when we survive, you'll find me, and I will deliver a healthy child but this child, you have to give up. Well, Esty survived the war, and she was in Auschwitz when it was liberated. She eventually emigrated to the United States, ending up in Borough Park, a fledgling Jewish neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York. Like millions of other survivors, she tried to put the war behind her and begin anew. She married again, and again, she was pregnant. Her husband urged her to find an obstetrician, but she had difficulty making the decision. So one day, she's strolling down the street in Borough Park when she sees a white placard on an apartment building. She goes closer to read it, and it says, Office of Dr. Gisela Pearl, Obstetrician. Could it be, was it really her, had Dr. Pearl survived and made her way to Bur Borough Park? She walked in the office, and Dr. Pearl said, 
Estimagid, you've survived. I am so overjoyed to see you. And then she kept her promise and she delivered a healthy baby boy to S.G. Magid, who they named Chaim for life. And then S.G. Magid went on to have many more children and raised four children. She died in 205 at the age of 84. So this is Lily Jacob Meyer. And um, I have a wonderful anecdote to tell you about her. Lily was 18 years old when her family and most of the Jews of Hungary were deported um, in 1944 to Auschwitz. Um, Nazis brutally separated her from her parents and younger brothers. So she was left completely alone. She was lucky and survived, but she was not always convinced that surviving totally alone without her family was a blessing. Yet, unlike other survivors, she was granted a small miracle. On the day of her liberation from the Dora concentration camp, hundreds of miles from Auschwitz, she went into a bar an office, a Nazi office. She slipped in there. They didn't see her do that. And she opens a drawer, and she finds an album of pictures of the last Jews that were on her train from Auschwitz. And she suddenly realizes that there's her parents, her brothers, and she took the album and grabbed a jacket of some kind, slipped it under her album, under her jacket, and made her way out of liberation, out of Auschwitz. I'm skipping a lot, ultimately to America. She had. This was all she had left of her family. So where does she end up? In Miami Beach, Florida. Everybody ends up in Miami Beach, Florida. So we're talking in the 50s. Now, uh, about 15 years ago, I get a call from Yad Vashem. They know me over there. And um, Ephraim K., the educator, says, Miriam. We're looking for somebody in Florida. We want to take her album, of which they had heard of, and we want to digitalize it and put it on the web. And right away, we thought of you, because you're in Miami Beach. Can you tell us where Lily is? We can't find her. So I said, well, I'll do a research. You know, I work at the Holocaust Memorial. I'm with the school district. My mother was from uh, Hungary. So um, <laughs> I still laugh when I think about this. My mom was in her 90s at the time. And I went up to her, the apartment, and I said, Mom, do you remember Lily Jacobs? And she said, oh, yes, I can imitate my mother. You can't. I can imitate her hunger. She says, sure, darling, I, I remember Lily. She was a very good friend. You know, she was a waitress at the Hungarian restaurant in South Beach. And, uh, and, and we fixed her up with her husband, met a man, you know. She was a very good friend of mine. So I said, so do you know where she is? Uh, Yad Vashem is trying to find her. And she said, my mother said, oh, you know, she's up there where the children play. 
that's how my mother talked. I don't know about your mother. <laughs> so I'm living in Florida, Miami Beach. Can you figure out where up there is, where the children play? Disney World, Orlando. So uh, it took a little while, but I put it together. I called Orlando Holocaust Museum, and sure enough, she had moved to Orlando with her husband, and um, she had passed, though. But then I came to find out that her daughter was a teacher in the school district where I work, but had never identified herself, which is not uncommon, as you all know, with second generation sometimes. And she did not realize probably at the time how valuable that album was. So I contacted the daughter, we got the album, and the album is now the famous Auschwitz album, which is the only authentic remaining pictures that are online uh, of the last Jews that uh, were in Auschwitz from Hungary. So you can actually Google that right now while you're sitting here. And uh, it's wonderful tool for resources, for historical research, as well as for students and for teachers. So that's the story of Lily Jacobs. Now, the next person that I wanted to talk to you about, if you're interested in art, is Dina Gottlieb of Babbitt. Now, this is another wonderful story. Dina was also born in Czechoslovakia. She studied printmaking and sculpture. In 1943, she and her mother were deported to the family camp Auschwitz-Birkenau. The Nazis made Dina an artist paint numbers on barracks and create portraits of SS men and their families. For the camp's children, she made murals from Disney. So what happened is in that particular camp, the children and the adults' family camps were allowed to try to keep the children busy. Ultimately, they were all going to die but they were allowed to keep them busy with various things. For example, there was a famous physical education teacher named Freddie Hirsch, who was German, and there's a marvelous movie, if you can find it, called Dear Freddie, of his story, and how he kept the spiritual part of the kids alive by actually doing physical education. Can you imagine in Auschwitz? Yes. And so that's why I, I always invite physical education teachers to come into my teaching institutes because they think, well, why would I be teaching the Holocaust? But I show them about Freddie uh, Hirsch. And so um, uh, Dina asked the children, what did they want to paint? Well, here's another connection of the past to the present. One of the movies that they had seen before they went into the camp was Snow White and the Seven Doors. So they said, oh, we want to do a painting of Snow White and the Seven Doors. So Dina led them into um, doing this painting of uh, a mural, of which there's a copy of it at uh, Yad Vashem. Uh, she worked very closely with Freddie Hirsch and with the others. Now, I found an actual testimony of hers to show you. Before I show it to you, because I'm afraid I'll forget, I want to tell you that, again, 
What's so amazing about this is ultimately she survived and met a man who was working at Disney World in America. So she actually went to work as an artist uh, in Disney World until she died just about five years ago or so. And uh, I always find uh, stories like that very inspiring and interesting. After that, Freddie Hirsch called me to the children's barracks he was heading then, and uh, he asked me if I could paint something on the wall for the children. And I said, well, if you can get the materials, he said, I'll get the materials. I said, okay. And then a very handsome young blonde man from the men's camp came over one day, and Freddie Hirsch called me to come and meet him, and he asked me what I need. So I said, well, if I can get any wall paints, so any tempera paints, I would like those, if you can get me some. And he said, yes, anything you want. And so before I knew it, Freddie had the stuff ready for me, and I started painting. At first, not knowing what, I looked at that huge drab, it was kind of olive-colored, like all the barracks were, wall, and um, I thought, well, the thing to do is to make it look like we are in a Swiss chalet on the deck, and there is a balustrade with flowers on, flower pots on it, and we are looking out at the beautiful meadows and maybe see some cows and sheep and stuff. And I started painting. And got, I got through with the balustrade and the flower pots, which I made cartoony, incidentally. I made the trompe d'oeil, so they looked like they were really three-dimensional. And the flowers were all cartoony flowers, like in the old cartoons, like um, tires instead of petals, you know. And all that very, very plastic, very... Uh, three-dimensional. And then afterwards, far in the distance, I was putting some sheep and some cows, and then I noticed that all the kids were standing around me, behind me. So I turned around and I asked them if they would, do they have any special wish what to put in that meadow? And they said, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And that was a very surprising answer. But since I had seen the picture seven times before, even while Jews were not allowed to go to the movies anymore with my star in my pocket, I could, I had memorized everything down to the soft shoes, the way they moved and everything. So I made a painting of Dopey standing on another dwarf's head with a cloak around him so he looked like a tall guy, so he would be as tall as Snow White. And they were dancing together and the shoes those soft shoes and everything. And the kids loved it, and I made some other dwarfs around, one who was playing the accordion. I think that was Grumpy, the mean one, and uh, the professor with the glasses. I made almost all the dwarfs standing around. Some of them were clapping, and uh, that's what the kids liked. I now understand that there was another painter who continued something painting on the walls after I have left. This is the woman who trained me, Balat Kamid. She was the head of the Warsaw Ghetto Resistance. And I was fortunate enough, uh, you can read her book on both sides of the wall. This is a picture of um, my mother and my father and my mother and her twin sister. It was my mother who really guided us to safety in our journey escaping the Holocaust. 
and she tried to get her sister to come with us, but she would not leave. And what I've done is prepared uh, the poem that my nephew wrote about that story about the sisters so that you can get a copy when this is over. When my mother died, and she was the guiding force in our family to helping us escape, I found this picture of her with the hat. And something about it just spoke to me of the typical American, uh, Jewish European woman who I'm sure many of you might have pictures like that. And then I found this book called Who is the Woman with That Hat? And I want to read it to you in the last five minutes because I feel it really expresses womanhood of Europe and those who had to escape and did not know where they were going or what they were going to. So I thought you might look at that while I read this. Who was the woman who wore the hat I saw in the Jewish Museum? What was she like? Did she lie awake in the morning and watch the way I did today as dawn brushed light through the sky? Did she put cream in her coffee? Did she put raisins in her apple cake? When the woman put on her hat, did she tip the brim just slightly? Did she like the way she looked with her hat down over one eye? When did she buy it, I wonder, and where did she wear it? Downtown shopping with her daughter, laughing with her little girl as they hurried along to grandma's house, happily walking home with her husband in the chill of evening. I wonder if she wore it the day she left home, the last time that cold, cold day in Amsterdam, that cold, cruel day in Amsterdam when the Jews were herded together and arrested in the square. There were islands of snow on the rooftops, there in the square in the Jewish quarter, there by the darkened synagogue. They all wore scarves and sweaters and coats with collars turned up high, and some wore hats as they knelt in the cold with their hands up over their heads. How could she know what to pack in their suitcase? How many sweaters to put on each of her children? Was she pulled from her family and lined up to be photographed from the side, from the front, and then with her hat on her head? Or did they even bother with photographs in Amsterdam in their fierce, efficient rush to get the Jews on the trains? It might have been my mother's hat. It could have been my hat. It could have been yours. Who was the woman? wearing that hat? Whom did she love? And did she put cream in her coffee? My questions are answered by silence. Yes, I must ask them still. For in my heart's searching, she lives on, whoever she was, whoever she was. So finally, I have two minutes probably. We often wonder if um, our children are listening <clears throat> to our stories. About a year or so after my mother died, <clears throat> my son David, who lives in Jacksonville, Florida, emailed me and said, Mom, I'm thinking of you today. 
And I thought, well, that's nice. And then I wrote back and I said, what's up? And he said, Mom, it's Grandma's yard site. And um, I said, oh my God, yes, of course. And he said, yeah, I was thinking of her. And he sent me this. And why do I show it to you? I never knew that my son even talked to my mother about this. And I think that it's such an important message that when we wonder if the second and third generations even care whether our children are listening to the stories that we have in our families of our survivors, and this proves that maybe they don't talk about it a lot, but yes, they're listening, they're caring, and they're talking. Tribute to my mother Sarah and memory from my son David. Yes, today is the day. I don't have a candle or my son's an attorney. But I set aside a few quiet moments to let the memories flow. And my most vivid memory of her is the first time she told me the story of escaping from Europe. Until then, it always seemed to me that she was so quiet, almost submissive in her old school ways. I was probably 11 or 12, and when she told me the story, it was riveting. She was suddenly as powerful and strong in the way she spoke as she must have been in helping guide your family through that time, your son David. So um, I'm sorry I had to rush through it all, but I did. And I'm glad that you came and heard a portion of my talk on why I think it's important that we pass on the stories of our women who resisted so valiantly, who fought, and uh, as Jewish women said, no, I'm not going to let you do this to me. I'm going to fight back. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Please visit myjli.com to learn more about JLI's multiple educational offerings and toracafe.com to view highlights and lectures from past retreats.